at best. Earnings aren't really growing that much, uh, even though they did on a year-over-year -year basis grow in Q3 for the first time in three quarters after uh, basically an earnings recession that we were in. But um, I think that the economy is continuing to slow. Uh, I think the Q3 GDP print was a head fake. Hi, and welcome to Wealthy On. I'm James Conner. Well, we made it through another week and another month, and what a month it was. And today I'm joined by my good friend, Peter Bookbar. Peter is the Chief Investment Officer of Bleakley Financial Group and also the editor of the Book Report. And Peter will help us make sense of this past week and also what we can expect in terms of the financial markets next week. Peter, thank you very much for joining us today. Not only was this past week incredible, but the month of November was an incredible one to say the least. The best November for the S&P in 100 years, it was up an astonishing 9%, up approximately 18% on the year now. And I wanna start right here and just get your views on what was driving this market higher in the past month. It seems to be solely the belief that the Fed is done raising interest rates and no one wants to miss a Fed is done rally in addition to the belief that markets always rally at the end of the year and no one wanted to miss the performance chase that usually takes place with that. So those are the two main factors that are propelling this momentum. Uh, and the market is putting aside why the Fed would be cutting interest rates and just rather focusing on the point that they could be cutting interest rates in 2024. And I know you spent a lot of time looking at quarterly numbers, and I want to get your views on the numbers we saw from Q3, and maybe what you can tell us what the overarching theme was. So earnings always beat expectations. That's just the, the, the name of the game when it comes to earnings season. Uh, the bar is set low, and companies around 75 to 80% of the time beat those earnings expectations. Uh, so putting that aside, uh, I think overall it was very much uh, a mixed bag in terms of a tell on the economy. Uh, those companies that did well seemed to be doing well more on the execution side, the cost side, uh, rather than the, the revenue line. And uh, those companies that are in retail, it was very mixed and bifurcated between those that cater to the higher end consumer uh, versus those that cater to the lower and middle end consumer. Uh, even with technology, it was very much a mixed bag. Uh, we saw very little growth in Apple, for example. Uh, Dell Computer, they, they uh, missed revenue numbers, lowered guidance. Uh, so it was sort of all over the place. I think the net uh, real takeaway, though, is that um, at best, earnings aren't really growing that much, uh, even though they did on a year-over-year -year basis grow in Q3 for the first time in three quarters after uh, basically an earnings recession that we were in. But um, I think that the economy is continuing to slow. Uh, I think the Q3 GDP print was a head fake, and uh, that will also be a drag uh, on earnings for Q4 and also as we go into next year. And you touched on the retailers, and I want to expand on this a little bit more. When you look at a name like Walmart or Costco or even Dollar Tree, what was the theme? Well, it's a consumer that's prioritizing how they spend their money. Uh, they're focused more on food and beauty, for example. Ulta had a pretty good quarter to the beauty point. Uh, they're also seeing uh, consumers that are making six figures that are now shopping at their stores, obviously looking for value and uh, less spending on discretionary stuff like electronics, furniture, 
uh, jewelry, you know, outside of what is spent for the holiday season, uh, but just a much more discerning, choiceful, a word that I've heard, and discerning uh, customer in terms of how they spend their money right now. It's going to be very interesting to see what happens in Q4 and when we get those numbers later in January, just in terms of consumer spending. Yes. Now, what we heard from a lot of these companies, uh, we've actually heard for a few quarters now. This is not uh, an all of a sudden new thing. It's the, the cumulative impact of uh, inflation. It's the, uh, for at least lower income people, uh, reduction in uh, the benefits that they've gotten, particularly SNAP. Uh, the resumption of student loan repayments. Uh, I think that the real question with the overall economy is, is what happens with the higher income consumer since they uh, spend an outsized uh, proportion of overall consumer spending relative to their, their you know, sort of the income docile, decile. Uh, right now, there's some mixed pictures with respect to that. We heard Burberry and Richemont talk about slower spend. And as I mentioned, more people making six figures that are uh, shopping at dollar stores and Walmart. Uh, so that's a sign that even they are more focused on uh, how they spend the money. And a lot will depend also on the trajectory of the labor market. Uh, we're not really seeing much in the tr in, in the terms of, of a pickup in firings of, of note, but we are seeing plenty of signs of a slowdown in the pace of hirings, whether that was directly from the BLS or ADP, but also anecdotally with uh, the manufacturing and services surveys that we see, and also the continued rise in continuing claims, uh, which is a sign that people are staying on their benefits longer and likely because of having more difficulty in finding a new job. And we have one more Fed meeting coming up before the end of the year, December the 12th and the 13th. It's a two-day meeting. What is your take? What do you think is going to happen? Well, it's been well telegraphed by the Fed members themselves that uh, they're probably done raising interest rates. And uh, they, they can now be, uh, they can proceed carefully is what you know, Powell uh, has used in, in terms of words. So they'll do nothing. Now, it, it is becoming a, a more interesting dynamic here with the Fed and interest rates because at the last meeting uh, going into, we had a very sharp rise in interest rates, uh, particularly long-end interest rates, mostly because the short end's tethered to the Fed funds rate. And the, mar and the Fed basically said, the market's tightening for us so we can sit back and do nothing. Well, now the market's easing for them and we'll see what kind of pushback we get from Powell. Powell spoke today uh, and in his prepared testimony, tried to push back by saying that they can definitely raise rates again. And uh, it's way too premature to start thinking about easing and other Fed members have s said the same but the market's easing for them. The 10-year yield is down to four and a quarter, and the two-year yield is down to 460, which is the lowest we've seen in a while. So uh, what the Fed does in December is gonna be more of, of how Jay Powell expresses his words in terms of how he manages this market reaction and expectations for rate cuts in 2024, rather than any action. Now that all said, uh, QT, quantitative tightening, continues on and will continue on well into 2024, and that is a, uh, a further tightening of monetary policy that uh, the stock market seems to have ignored. Yes, I'm glad you brought that point up because everything we've seen so far, this move, as you just alluded to, is all based on interest rate expectations and 
a lot of the sectors that have been under pressure in the past year, especially interest-sensitive names like REITs and utilities and the financials, have caught a serious bid. Even gold has actually caught a bid here in the last couple of weeks. And uh, we haven't seen a move in gold in the past century. I'm being facetious, but you know what I mean. Do you think the market's getting ahead of itself in, in just the expectation of rates not going up anymore or being cut maybe in the first half of the year? Well, it's the market's reacting to what they've been trained to react to in the last 15 years is to just buy stocks when the Fed is easing and uh, thinking that, you know, the Fed is just the cure all to everything. So it doesn't matter what the economic data says. It doesn't matter that it's weakening. It only matters that the Fed cuts in response to any weakening and that will offset the negative we of, of the weakening. That's that's the thinking of the of the markets. And um while I understand it, and it definitely helps to explain this rally, uh, I think people should just understand that in previous rate cutting cycles, uh, markets actually, it actually happened in the middle of bear markets. And in fact, the Fed started cutting in September of 2007, just as the bear market was beginning, let alone ending. So I think uh, people just have to be careful with just buying things just because the Fed is done hiking and may cut next year. Because even if they cut 100 basis points, even if they cut 150 basis points next year, you're still talking about a Fed funds rate that's four rather than five and a half percent. And four is much different than zero. And over the last 15 years, up till 2022, we got used to zero. Uh, and as I said earlier, they're still shrinking their balance sheet, which is a continuous form of, of monetary tightening. In addition to even a 4% Fed funds rate is a continued form of tightening because it's going to negatively affect anybody that has debt coming due because the debt coming due was was priced when the Fed funds rate was at zero. Interesting points. And I just want to clarify one thing that you said. If they do cut interest rates, you're saying that should not be a positive sign. That should be a sign that things are a lot worse than the market believes they are. Is that correct? Well, it, it'll, it'll be in response to, yes, inflation's moderating. So they got to figure out what that right real rate will be. Uh, the Fed funds rate relative to uh, CPI, uh, it's still uncertain. I, I think it's going to be higher than the market thinks. But, you know, the unemployment rate right now is still below 4%, but at 39 it's the highest level since January 2022. And I expect it to be going into the fours next year. So the, mar the Fed will also be responding to that rise in the unemployment rate. So they'll be cutting for not good economic reasons. And yes, I know how rate cuts get markets excited, but we, we do have to understand that there's more to the investment um, uh, puzzle and, 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 and business than just buying things when the Fed is cutting rates and selling it when the Fed is hiking. And Peter, I want to pick your brain a little bit about travel because that's also, that's also a good indicator of how the strength of the consumer is. And one of the numbers we saw in the past week um, after Thanksgiving were the numbers coming from the TSA and the number of people passing through security at airports. And it was an all-time record. 2.7 million people passed through security at airports in the U.S. the day before Thanksgiving. That exceeded the record of 2.6, which, which was made in 2019. And that would imply that the strength of consumers is pretty good because they're out traveling and they're probably renting cars and, and staying in hotels. And even when you look at some hotel chains, Marriott or Hyatt or Hilton, they're also doing very well. So how do you explain that? Well, it, it, it's, it's really more reflective of how the consumer is spending their money. Uh, they're not spending on 
uh, on stuff, on goods, because they spent a lot of money from 2020 to 2021 on goods. So all they're doing is just shifting their spend. If they were spending a lot of money on goods and services, I would say, yeah, the, the consumer is pretty healthy and, and, and benefiting from rising real wages. Uh, but they're only spending one thing and not on another. So it's just really shifting around. And, um, but there's no doubt they're prioritizing, particularly younger people, travel and going to concerts and sporting events and going out to dinner. So the consumer still is, is spending and just a question uh, of, of, of how long that can continue and whether at some point maybe they start shifting back to goods at some point. Um, but real wages over the last three years uh, ha have flatlined. And while inflation is up almost 20%, wages are up by a similar amounts. So while many in, well, in the aggregate have not lost pace, uh, they've gone nowhere in terms of, of, of real wages. And some have fallen because uh, some, some people's wages aren't up that much. Uh, so I think it's just how consumers are just shifting around, you know, the same dollar that's in their pocket and how they want to divvy it up. Interesting point. So they're not making more money. It's just that they're spending money or prioritizing their money in a different form. Well, they're making more money in nominal terms, but not in real terms. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So I want to move on now and and get your views on real estate and more specifically commercial real estate. There's I recently read a report from a company called Castle Systems and they look after office building security systems and and one of the services that they offer are, are security cards. So every time you go in and out of a commercial office building, you have to flash your card. And so they keep track of what's happening with these office buildings throughout the US. And I believe they're in 2,600 buildings, 138 cities. So they have a good sense of what's going on. And a report that I recently read, they stated, depending on the city, of course, but anywhere from 40 to 60% of the people are going into the office on a given day. And that's, I'm really shocked by that number because here we are, it's been quite some time since the pandemic, but yet a lot of people are still not going back to work. And I guess my question to you is, what does this mean to the commercial real estate um, industry? So you have two things happening here. You have higher interest rates, higher cost of capital, but then nobody's going into the office. So when these leases come up, there might be a risk of these leases not being renewed. And so you have a lot of office buildings in the U.S. sitting empty. Well, specifically in the office space, you're right. Obviously, the, 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 the challenges that it has. Uh, where people aren't really going in Monday, Friday, 
and even Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, as you said, in some cities, it's really only getting to 60%. There are some cities, uh, some belt cities that it's getting to 70. Uh, so there's less need, yeah, for space. But, you know, there are other parts of the commercial real estate market where the fundamentals are better, but you still have balance sheet challenges. So multifamily is a very good business to be in, uh, especially when mortgage rates are 7.5%. But rental growth is slowing, but it's up a lot over the last couple of years. But for those that have debt coming due this year, next year, 2025, that's where the real problem is, regardless of what part of the, the uh, commercial real estate industry you're in. Because if it's coming due now, your 3% loan is repricing at probably 8 to 9. And you either need to come up with more equity, or you can find a bank that will work with you. Uh, or you just hand back the keys to the building. Uh, so that's the stress point, generally speaking, for commercial. But yeah, the office has its own structural challenges. Just as over the last 20 years, the mall business had its challenges and, and the B&C malls have gone out of business and uh, retailers have, have, have focused on the A malls. It's gonna be the same thing with office where the, the, the high quality, newer buildings with a lot of the cool amenities they're going to attract more tenants than the uh, the, the B and C mall uh, offices that uh, just don't, and it's just going to be uh, a natural attrition that certainly is going to be accelerated uh, too by the the, the offsite balance sheets that a lot of people in real estate have. I mean, after all, you know, commercial real estate has benefited from 40 years of falling interest rates, and that that continuous drop made all these real estate people a lot of money and making them think that they're geniuses. But now you have a higher cost of capital world. And, you know, it definitely separates the men from the boys and those that have a good balance sheet and equity and those that don't. 2024 might be an interesting year for the real estate market. For anybody that has debt coming due, for sure. Uh, those that don't have debt coming due, they should be okay. Uh, and if anything, those that have a good balance sheet can take advantage of the distress we're gonna see uh, uh, with their competitors. So we can't talk about real estate without talking about the financials. And if we look back in Q1 of 2023, it was all about the regional banking crisis. Here we are in Q4, the last month of the year, and it would appear that everything is okay within the with US financials. Um, maybe you can give us an overview of what you think. JP Morgan is doing very well. Wells Fargo is doing okay. What are your thoughts about financials? Well, their businesses aren't really growing because their loan books aren't growing. Uh, commercial industrial loans uh, are, are back to the same level they were in September 2022. Uh, mortgage business is shrinking. Uh, the credit card business, yeah, they're, they're extending more loans, but we're seeing rising delinquencies and the same with autos. So the banking business is still very tough. At the same time, they have, uh, you know, squeezing their margins as they raise uh, interest paid on, on savings and CDs. So as to keep customers from going to money market funds. Uh, so the business is still tough. Now, there's been some calm because the Fed created this funding program that allowed banks to pledge their, their treasuries at par, even though they may be valued at 80 cents on the dollar. And also the U.S. government has... Uh, implicitly guaranteed uh, everyone's deposits. So that then has calmed down any threats of a uh, deposit run. Uh, now, while it's not explicit, uh, the, the, the local bank is not going to get, uh, is going to get bailed out their depositors, the uninsured depositors, 
by the FDIC because how can they rationalize bailing out you know the venture capital companies of Silicon Valley Bank, but but then not save you know Joe Schmo at the local bank who had more than two hundred fifty thousand dollars in the bank. Uh, but the banking business is still very challenged right now. Don't don't be mistaken by you know the, the sense of calm here. And so if we were to look at the financial sector and maybe even the commercial real estate sector, do you see either one of those as a potential threat in 2024? So, I mean, when I say a potential threat, I mean like a black swan event? No, I think that, that the bank blanks, black swan happened in 08. Uh, I think the problem with the banking sector is that it's just getting access to credit is just getting more and more difficult. And I'm not, I'm less worried about a viability issue with a lot of banks. No, there'll be some, I'm sure, that, that get troubled here with bad loans, particularly in commercial real estate. Uh, but I'm just more worried about just a credit crunch, broadly speaking. And um, that, that, I think, is the, the, the biggest concern I have. Now, you've also written a lot about China and what's happening there with their real estate market. Maybe you can just provide an overview of your thoughts. Well, the, the, there's obvious distress with a lot of the, the uh, residential real estate developers. And that started a few years ago with Evergrande and has certainly spread throughout. Uh, I think right now, it seems like the, the Chinese government is really stepping up their attempts to stabilize the situation. Uh, they're honing in on uh, the better capitalized developers, uh, the top 50 uh, they're, they're, they seem to be uh, focused on. Their main thing right now is to get unfinished projects done, unfinished projects that people have put deposits down on. That's what they're trying to, to get done. So they're lending money. They're offering very cheap loans to banks to extend to these 50 companies and others, but mostly these 50 to get to finish these unfinished apartment buildings. Now, there's a lot more money that's going to be needed to do this, but this seems to be a start. Uh, because once you get that apartment finished, then you can get the flow through of escrow money to the developers, which will then ease some of their, their cash crunch uh, and hopefully stabilize. Now, the interesting thing about the Chinese real estate market is that the existing home market has actually gotten better there because the average person is nervous about buying a new apartment until it's finished. So they're, they're shifting their attention to buying existing apartments from people that need to sell. Uh, so that market's actually been okay. So I do think we probably have seen the worst in the, the Chinese uh, residential real estate market. Uh, the question though is, is what kind of rebound do we see and where do prices sort of settle out at? Uh, but just getting some stabilization would, would certainly be helpful to the, the Chinese consumer that has a lot of their, their net worth tied up in residential real estate and also stem the bleeding uh, on the part of these developers. Peter, I want to get your views on energy now. Of course, this is a very important commodity for the U.S. economy and the global economy. And I recently re read a report from Goldman Sachs. They're looking for a range of between $80 to $100 for 2024. And I was surprised to see it so high. And uh, one of the things that would really help this economy is a much lower oil price. What are your thoughts about oil as we go into 2024? I happen to be in that 80 to $100 camp. I, I understand that there's worries about the demand side, particularly if the U.S. economy goes into recession. Europe is essentially in a recession. China is obviously slowing uh, itself. 
Um, so I understand that demand side creating worries about oversupply. But I do think that there is a newfound uh, discipline on the part of many drillers and countries, uh, particularly Saudi Arabia, in, in trying to keep prices elevated. I do think there is also a possibility that if the Fed starts to cut interest rates in 2024, uh, you'll see uh, a sharp fall in the U.S. dollar, which could then lead to a sharp rise in, in oil prices, which would then in turn complicate what the Fed is trying to do in cutting interest rates because then it helps to flare up inflation again. Uh, so I, I am in the higher oil price camp. We're long energy stocks, so I'm also sort of talking my book, uh, but we've been long them for the last couple of years. So owning them and me talking about them is nothing new. And when you say long energy stocks, are you long the producers, big cap producers, mid caps? Uh, so we're long some of the, the big European ones, uh, Canadian one, uh, and also long some U.S. natural gas companies, as I think natural gas is one of the cheapest uh, commodities out there, and uh, we're pretty bullish on natural gas. And if you're looking for lower interest rates, which will lead to a lower U.S. dollar, that's also very good for gold. What are your thoughts on gold? Uh, we're very bullish on gold and silver and the miners and um, have been for a while. And uh, now that gold is basically at an all-time record high, uh, getting helped by the weaker dollar and also the drop in real rates, uh, I'm expecting much higher prices. And just one thing with, with interest rates, you know, just because the Fed is going to cut short-term interest rates next year does not mean that long-term interest rates continue to fall. I see a possibility greater than 50% that long rates actually rise when the Fed starts cutting short-term interest rates. And so you're, with regard to gold, you're very happy with the move that we've seen in the last couple of weeks, I guess. Yes, I'm happy with higher. And what's your strategy there? Do you own the physical? Do you own the large producers? Uh, both. We're, we're long physical gold and silver uh, via ETFs, and we're long uh, some minor ETFs and also some individual mining companies. And if you talk about gold, you, you also have to talk about what they call the new gold or digital gold. Do you have a view on Bitcoin, given the move that we've seen this year? It's up 130%. So I, as a bull on gold, uh, I, have, I feel like those that are bullish on Bitcoin, you know, we have the same sort of philosophy on, on central banking and, and money printing and, and, uh, and so on. So in terms of, of that philosophical similarity I'm there but in terms of where the price of Bitcoin goes uh, I, I'm completely clueless I, I feel much more comfortable with where the price of gold goes because at least as a major central bank reserve uh, I can at least somewhat ba uh, value it relative to the size of central bank balance sheets and the huge expansion that we've seen in them over the last 15 years with Bitcoin I have no idea how to value it yeah I think the way I look at it is it's just a total risk on trade, right? Like I can't get over the move. We've seen just in the past month, it's gone from 28,000 to 38,000. And I guess we've seen the same sort of move in a lot of the big cap tech stocks in the NASDAQ, right? It's just risk on in a big way. Well, you, you can, you can draw, uh, you can have, draw a comparison over the last 15 years between the, 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 the triple Qs and, and Bitcoin. And uh, they do have a, a, a pretty good relationship. So you're right. Uh, that, that's what it's proven to be. I mean, Bitcoin has only lived most of their life uh, in a QE zero interest rate and negative interest rate world. It's only the last couple of years that QE, that, that Bitcoin has sort of tasted 
something other th than that, and it didn't trade well. But now that obviously the people are hopeful that there'll be a Bitcoin ETF that is an actual Bitcoin ETF and the Fed cutting interest rates, you know, it's getting back to the world that it's used to. Uh, so it, it's it just doesn't have the longevity and 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 sort of tests that gold has had. Gold's been around for five thousand years, so you know you've been through a lot in five thousand years. Uh, so it'll be interesting to watch Bitcoin again. I, I I understand. I philosophically agree with why people are bullish on it, uh, but I also need to remind people that Bitcoin is not the only scarce asset. You know, nineteen sixty nine baseball cards that Topps made. Well, they stopped making them in 1969. So, um, you know, a 1969 Mickey Mantle doesn't trade like Bitcoin. It may go up in price over time uh, for sure, but, um, you know, people don't talk about it like they talk about Bitcoin, but, you know, they're similar in that it's a, a finite asset. Peter, as chief investment officer, you speak to investors on a regular basis. What are their primary concerns? Uh, it's the concerns that we see every day. It's the new... Uh, higher interest rate regime where if you need to buy something and borrow to do it, uh, it costs a lot more, uh, whether you're buying a home, a car, or any other big ticket item. Uh, they're worried about the geopolitics, even though geopolitics typically has a fleeting impact on, on the economy and markets. Uh, and and just, just general fragility in, in with respect to the consumer because of, of, of a very notable rise in inflation over the last couple of years. Uh, so I think there's just, but you know, the life is uncertain, but there just seems to be, uh, more unknowns now and, and a, and a higher level of nervousness out there, uh, than, than what I've seen before. Very interesting points. And Peter, as we wrap up, maybe we can, we discussed what happened in the month of November and it was a great month. What do you, what should investors look forward to in the coming week and maybe in the coming month? I don't know. I don't know what will happen the next week or month. Um, we obviously have the Fed meeting. We have the payroll number next Friday, uh, which I think is going to be a big deal. Uh, I think in terms of, of year-end market rallies, we probably have seen most of it in November, and that the December will probably be more of a digestion of that. Uh, I mean, the sentiment is getting very giddy here in uh, the American Association of Individual Investors. Their read this week had the bears at the lowest level since January 2018, right after Congress uh, passed the uh, corporate tax cut and Trump signed it. Uh, so you have now you know, basically almost a six-year low in the number of bears. So any contrarian should get worried about that when bulls are spiking and bears are collapsing. Oh, I love that stat. Thank you for bringing that to our attention. Well, Peter, that was a fascinating discussion. And I want to thank you very much for making time for us today. If someone would like to learn more about you and your various services, where can they go? Well, on the wealth management side, they can check us out at bleakly.com and reach out. And if they're interested in what I have to write uh, every day, they can uh, check out my Substack page at peterbookbar.substack.com and uh, they can trial it. And if they like it, they can subscribe. Once again, Peter, thank you. Thanks, James. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Peter Bookbar. I know I did. If you are considering how to prepare for your financial future, consider having a discussion with a financial advisor that Wealthion has endorsed at Wealthion.com. You can fill out a short form there. It will not take much of your time. And it's a free service, and there's no obligation to work with any of these advisors. 
Don't forget to subscribe to our channel, WealthyOn.com, and also hit that notification button to be kept up to date on future events. We have some amazing content coming out in the coming weeks that will help you with your financial future. And you can also watch our new host, Anthony Scaramucci, every Friday here on WealthyOn. Once again, thank you for being with us, and I look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you.